0: So, scripture reading for this afternoon you can again find in First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. We'll read the first eleven verses. First Peter chapter four, beginning at verse one. Therefore. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them to the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit." but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As far our Scripture reading and our focus this afternoon will be specifically on verse 7 and the first half of verse 7, where it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Dear congregation, this verse is a transition from the previous six that we looked at last week. It continues the thought, but now it it transitions from one to the next, as we'll see. Because in verse 2, Peter had said that we are to be armed with the same mind, or verse 1, sorry, armed yourselves with the same mind, so that you no longer live in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. No longer... To live for the old life, but now for the will of God, and that's a transition. And Galatians five verse twenty five says, If we live in the spirit, then let us also walk in the spirit. That that life needs to be evidence. Walking in the spirit means that our life is being directed then to the will of God, by the will of God and by the Spirit of God. Peter calls it a ceasing from sin, putting off the old man, putting sin to death. Peter had called us to then arm our mind, to prepare our mind of how we are to live in this world, how, what we will face in the world as a result of not only putting off our sins, because as we begin to live as Christians in this life, even not participating in the evil actions of the world, as he says here, they will begin to oppose you. They will begin to mock you for not going along with them. But it's not only that we are to... Uh, be aware of, but it's also that inner battle against the sin that we are to put off. And it's the suffering that we face from the opposition when they despitefully use you and persecute you. And we're to bear all these things patiently. But if that was all what it was, if, if the Christian life was only putting away the evil only putting off those old works, then we could be tempted just to hide, to to keep our head down, as it were, because God says all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, but we don't want to become a target, and so we would have a tendency to hide ourselves. But a Christian life is more than just putting off sin, more than just stopping that life of going along with the pleasures pleasures of this world. It's also the putting on of the new man, it's also living that new way of life according to the will of God. There has to be an act of living, you know, in obedience to God, living according to the Spirit of God. And so our life really has to be defined by doing the will of God. And that's really our covenant obligation, isn't it, to God, our commitment to God. Because God is the one who is faithful to his covenant as he showed to Israel but He also called Israel to a life of obedience to Him, to faithful obedience. And there He promises blessing upon their obedience, and He also promised a curse upon their disobedience. And so God also calls us as His covenant people to be faithful to His Word, to put away our evil doings, to cease to do evil and learn to do good and walk in the will of God. That's how he led Israel to the promised land, and that's how he leads his people today, to the promised land of eternity. But it does leave us with a question of how is it that we are to live even in times of trial, in times of suffering or persecution. But before we consider that question, one of the biggest quest- uh, challenges in our life often is our motivation. How are we to be motivated even to do something, especially when it's difficult, in, in the midst of trials? And so before answering the question of how we are to live for God, I want to look this, mo- this evening at, at, at why we should live for God, the motivation for living for God. And that's our theme this afternoon, the motivation for godly living. And we see, firstly, that the motivation is at the end, is at hand. As Peter says in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. If everything he has said about Christ this far has not encouraged you to live for God, then he gives us his other motivation. Titus 2 verse 14 says that Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It's for this purpose that Christ, by his Holy Spirit, sanctifies his people. He purifies them from sin for good works. So that pattern must be seen in our life, not only putting away sin, but doing good works. So how does God push us to be more zealous, more passionate to do good works? Oh, well, here Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The culmination, the, the finishing up of all things is near. Now, it does not necessarily refer to the end of the world here, even though Peter may have been thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus had prophesied that happened only a few years after he passed away, in the year 70 A.D. And that is also a picture of the end of the world. But here, certainly we have to apply this to the end of our own lives. Jesus also warned about that. He tells us to be ready for that day in Luke 21. He says, and there he explained, "Beware that your heart is not weighed down with all sorts of mind-numbing substances such as alcohol or weighed down with anxious cares or concerns of this life because this or so that day does not come upon you unexpectedly." So he's saying as we saw last time, have a clear mind, have prepare your mind. And so Peter said in verse 1 as well, he prepares our mind to be ready to meet the Lord. And some of us are closer than others. We don't know the day of our departure, but we all need to be ready. And the fact that the end of is at hand should motivate us to live for the glory of God. And then, in connection with that, secondly, one motivation is also the fear of judgment. Because it is appointed unto all once to die, the Bible says, and then the judgment. Verse 5, Peter said, The wicked will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ. If, if, you're not, if you do not, ha- not have a Spirit, you're not ready to meet the judge of heaven and earth. And if you're not ready, as I heard this morning, then you are condemned already. That means you already know what the, what the outcome will be. You'll be found guilty, sentenced to eternal death. Now, that should be the motivation of everyone here who is not ready to meet the Lord. Motivation to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to begin a life with the Lord. But in this passage, Peter is not specifically addressing the unbelievers. He's addressing Believers. And so then, thirdly, we should be motivated by the joy of the final deliverance that is coming. The real motivation Peter here has in mind is of the joy of your final deliverance. Remember, he's speaking to the persecuted believers here, and he's encouraging to look ahead, because the, the, the day is coming when they will be delivered from their suffering and from the trials in this life. And what Peter is telling us is, The same as Hebrews 12, verse 2, that we must go forward looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He said something similar in in chapter 1, verse 8, that even though we are undergoing various trials now, bearing our cross now, yet believing, he says, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. And full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you're armed in your mind with that faith and hope of the joy that is set before you. And with that hope you can now live for the will of God even while enduring a cross. If you turn to Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, I'll reference this a time or two. Paul says something similar, Romans 13 verse 11. He says, "And do this, knowing and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on, the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. There's a motivation, knowing that you'll be delivered into eternal joy and glory. But then, fourthly, in connection with that, motivated by the nearness of that final deliverance, because it's something that's almost here. The end of all things is at hand. That, that speaks of an imminence, a nearness, a closeness. Your suffering is almost over, he says to those persecuted believers. armed with the understanding of of why Christ suffered and and why we must now face suffering, and that enables us to patiently endure for a short while longer, we realize that the end of our trials, which Paul calls only a light affliction, is almost over. The refining time is drawing to an end. And if you think of what refining means, it's refining silver in the fire. The silver is held in the fire only as long as is needed to to scrape off the dross, to make it pure silver. And even then, the the silver has to go back into the fire to to shape it into whatever it's supposed to be made. But once that's done, once the vessel comes out, the beautiful silver-designed vessel comes out, it's done. And then it doesn't need to go back into the fire again. So, are you being refined even today in the fire? And will you then glisten in the sunlight when that comes out and the the vessel is put out for display? Or is it still, if the Lord is refining you, there is nothing but dross coming out? Is there there silver? Is there true faith? Is there true hope? And so, Peter says, rather than focusing on that fire, on that suffering, on, on the refining time, He says, focus on the blessing and the glory that that awaits the people of God. There's a day coming when soon you'll be that finished product. and You'll be brought into the Master's house forever. And so he says, now think of this. The end is almost here. You still have the opportunity now then to live for the glory of God because the day is coming. You'll no longer be able to live here on this earth for that no longer be able to witness, no longer to be able to help the needy or to share the gospel to the dying. So he says, be motivated to live for God because it will conform you to Christ as part of that process, being shaped for His glory. And soon that time will be over. But another motivation is knowing that it's all undeserved. The joy that you have even now as a Christian, the joy that is set before you in heaven, is all undeserved. Someone once said we don't deserve any blessing or any joy at all in this world. All we deserve is eternal misery, punishment in hell. But God is pleased to put it on the Lord Jesus Christ, to crucify His own Son on the cross, and to put our sins and iniquities upon Him, so that sinners can now be delivered from that torment, so that His blessings could be poured out upon them. Shall we then complain if we have to suffer a little here, to be refined, to be purified, to get the remaining dross out of it? Should we complain that knowing that God has eternal glory in store for His people for the sake of Christ? So then every blessing, every moment of health, every joy that we have is a pure gift, undeserved. Even every chastisement, every correction, every trial is a gift a refining gift for the Master. So be motivated to live for God even now, because every blessing is His gift and must be used for Him. Sixthly, the motivation is knowing that we must patiently wait for it. If you know you have to wait for something, you can patiently wait. But if you expect something today, you have to wait for example, your birthday—if your birthday is two months off, but you want your present now, you—you you can't really wait. But if you know it's two months off, you'll prepare yourself for that. But the end is at hand. But it's a joy that you know you have to wait for. It's not here yet. Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Paul said, "You're that much closer now." The night of this world is far spent. If you ever lying awake, lie awake in—in in, in your bed at night, and early morning hours. It's, it's too late really to get much more sleep and too early really to get out of bed or to do anything, and yet you have to wait. The night is far spent, but it's not quite morning yet. You're still waiting. I was speaking with an elderly man, and he said waiting is so difficult, so hard, even, even without pains and afflictions. Just, just waiting for that morning light to come, waiting when Christ will come to take him home. He knows it's coming, but he has to wait, knowing that it's so close, and yet not here yet. The day is at hand. But one day you'll wake in, his full, in the fullness of His glory, where the Son of Righteousness will shine in all His glory. Well, Revelation 21 says that the city of God has no need for the sun or the moon, because the Lamb is its light. And Soon you'll be You'll awake in his likeness. You'll be in the light of his presence. And yet now we have to wait patiently for that. And So you're motivated to live for God as you await his coming. You wait patiently, motivated, knowing that you are to be good stewards of the gifts and of the time and of the talents that he has given you so that he will find you faithful when he comes. And seventhly, motivated by sharing in the joy as you wait. Because it's a shared joy, isn't it? It's not an individual joy, but the church is one body. Hebrews 10.25 says that since the end is at hand, this is all the more reason to meet and to assemble together as a church in a day when so many people are meeting less, when people are individualistically minded and and want to do church in their own way, which just means they don't want to deal with all the problems or the challenges that come along with people. They don't want to bear each other's burdens, but then they also miss sharing in each other's joys. There's others who fall away completely, the apostasy that Christ speaks of. And his world seeks in many ways to shatter the church, either by persecution or bringing in all kinds of sins of division within the church. But Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. The joy that God gives His church is one joy, united in Christ, one body, one church, one faith. And so the church must rejoice together and look forward and encourage each other for that coming and to work together, to bearing each other up, and that's the calling of the church. The motivation should be to walk godly in that united hope together as one body. That leads us then to, this, to the last point, motivated to live godly as you wait, because it's really a motivational joy through union with Christ. Because again, that Hebrews 10 or 24, to let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works. That's part of the reason the church gathers is for the purpose to stir each other up to love and to good works. It's a joy that should stir each other up, to be zealous of good works. This is one of the ways the Lord uses to to make His people zealous of good works, exhorting one another that the end of all things is at hand, to remind one another here, not of how to get the next best thing in this world, but to remind ourselves that the end is at hand. This is why we come together, to get a spiritual reality check, We are thankful that many people in this congregation do this, that we see there's a working together and an encouraging. But then again, if you look at that Romans 13, it's uh, Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the will of God. And in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Knowing the time that the end is at hand. Knowing the time that our salvation is now nearer And when you first believed that every moment you come closer to meeting God, closer to finishing the race, closer to being delivered completely from your trials, that night is almost over. And so Paul says, cast off those works of darkness. No longer live for our sinful desires, but for the will of God, he says in chapter 4, verse 2. Because that old life, the old life of the flesh is always motivated by what we can get here now. And he says, throw that away. All these sins are are just trappings in this world. Don't be entangled in them anymore. So we need to ask ourselves, "What, what is hindering us? What sins are you still clinging to in this world? What is still clouding your minds? Whether it be a substance abuse or and overly concerned about the things of this time, overindulging in the pleasures of this world, because an overemphasis on the things of this world shows that we are motivated by trying to find our rest, our happiness, our joy here. And what sins are we secretly hiding? Because we know the motivation of, of the thieves or evildoers. Like a thief who sneaks around at night in the darkness wearing a mask trying to hide his identity. Or a young man who covers his face with a hoodie to sneak into the adulteress's house. He's seeking, they're seeking their pleasures here. But they only have a few hours left to work and then the night will be over. The works of darkness are those who, who don't want anyone to see or to know. So the works of darkness that are in our hearts are the things that we try to hide from God, that we try to hide from our family, from our parents, from our siblings. We hide them because we know they're the works of darkness. Peter says, cast them away. Throw them away and put on the armor of light. Come to the light of God's Word. Let us walk properly in the sight of God as in the day. Motivated to do the will of God, motivated to study His Word and to follow His will to bring all our sins to the light. The day is far spent. We don't know if we'll see tomorrow. And for the believer, that'll be a day of great joy. But 1 John 1 says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. And we're lying to ourselves, and we're lying to God, and that'll be exposed when His light shines in our heart then we're not ready to give an account of of our life. But he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we fellowship with one another. The church has open fellowship with each other. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But here also, those who desire to follow the Lord sometimes struggle with sins that cling to us, because there's a difference between the sins that we try to cling to ourselves, the sins that we try to hide, and those who cling to us, those who we can't seem to shake off, those who that that seem to be dwelling in us that we need to be washed from. We don't want to continue in them. It's it's a new nature that hates our sins, our old sins that we, we want to get rid of. We have ceased from sin. But John says, if we confess our sins, he, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's his, it's his Spirit that gives us grace and power over them, slowly and a little at a time. But now it's here that you're motivated to live for God, who has delivered you from sin, from the power or dominion of sin, and who through your life of sanctification by His Spirit, it gives you That that victory over, little by little, to to overcome, to wash away, until one day you'll be delivered completely. And the end of all things is at hand, when finally the last sin will be laid down forever. These are just some brief thoughts on the motivation, knowing that the end is at hand. And shall we then not together live our remaining time in this earth for the will of the Lord? And to dedicate our lives and our hearts to, to serve Him, knowing that the time is at hand, that soon He will come. Soon we must meet Him. Soon the night will be over, the night of our struggle against sin, but also the time to be able to live for the Lord, for the expansion of His kingdom in this world. Shall we then not be motivated for His glory in all these ways? And Peter goes on in the following verses also to explain how Christians are to be living for the will of God, which we'll consider next time. Amen.